0: Welcome to the Molecular Ecologist podcast, a conversation about ecology, evolution, and everything in between. Each episode, contributors to the Molecular Ecologist discuss the science we've been reading and writing about. I'm Jeremy Yoder. I edit the Molecular Ecologist, and I'm an assistant professor of biology at Cal State Northridge in Los Angeles. Joining me today, we have.
1: I'm Sarah Schenker. I'm a first year graduate student in Stacy Kruger Hadfield's lab at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and I'm interested in studying macroalgae and freshwater systems.
2: And uh, I'm Kelly Friel. I'm a postdoc with Micropay at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology at the University of Hawaii on uh, Oahu. And I study uh, marine microbes in the water column at the moment.
3: And I'm Katie Grogan. I'm a postdoc at Penn State in the Department of Anthropology and Biology, and I study anthropological genetics and evolutionary biology.
0: Welcome, everybody. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be discussing um, how population genetic structure works in, in river networks, um, how the history of rabbits and biological warfare against rabbits in Australia, um, uh, a compilation of online materials for professional development at basically all levels of, of academia, and uh, the biodiversity of sourdough starters. Uh, so let's, let's dive in. We'll start off with uh, with Sarah. So you posted uh, posted earlier this month about um, how how rivers structure uh, the genetics of the of the organisms that live in them. Um, tell us about what you found there.
1: Yeah. So um, I wrote it for a conservation genetics class I was in um, in the spring semester, and um, I was doing a lot of reading during the spring semester. It was my first semester in graduate school, and I was trying to learn about freshwater ecosystems in general, because I haven't worked in freshwater systems before. Um, And I found this one paper in particular that got me interested in thinking about how that river environment shapes population genetics and gene flow. Um, So it was this paper on an endangered freshwater gastropod called the round rock snail. And the study was in Alabama, close to where some of my field sampling sites will be kind of in, you know, the same, the same area. And they talked about these um, all these predictions that have been made about how rivers will shape um, species diversity and genetic diversity. Uh, And they kind of named all these hypotheses by name and cited all of these papers. And so it led me to digging deeper into more of what some of those theories are, how they've been tested um, and and thinking about how they would be applicable to the research that I want to do. So it kind of just led me down a rabbit hole and then I had to write a blog post for this class and um, it it gave me the opportunity to kind of put together all these different papers and ideas I had been thinking about and to kind of wrap my head around them in more of a cohesive way. Mm
0: So how how are how does population structure play out differently in a river than just um, across a terrestrial landscape?
1: Yeah, so on a terrestrial landscape, we think about isolation by distance a lot. So the farther away um, populations are, we expect them to be more differentiated. Um, and then there was also this idea of isolation by resistance. so, Um, If there's a barrier, like a mountain range or a river, depending on the organism, that might slow down dispersal between populations. Um, And so the field of landscape genetics started by studying those patterns across landscapes of genetic differentiation and gene flow. Um, But since I'm looking at rivers, the the things that are going to shape dispersal uh, and differentiation will be different. Um, And so rivers are really unique because the water flows in one direction. There are these really distinct channels that most of the organisms who live in the rivers can't go out of those. So it's not like, uh, what's something that lives on land. It's not like a bird, you know, when you literally think of a distance as the bird flies, Mm. Um, you can't um, compare distances in the same way um and rivers are also interesting because they're um kind of disproportionately affected by humans uh a lot of the environmental features can also naturally change along the river as you go from upland where it's colder and maybe a smaller stream towards lower down near the coastal plain where it'll be wider and warmer um so they're just different things and so um like one concept was the mighty headwaters hypothesis so At the upstream part of a river, these smaller um, headwater streams are expected to be more differentiated than downstream where kind of all the water has flown together, flowed together into one um, channel where we expect more mixing um, between populations. Um, and then because the water's flowing in one direction, a lot of people have predicted that as you go downstream in a river, genetic diversity will increase because there's going to be more downstream dispersal than upstream. So kind of those unique geological and environmental characteristics of a river are expected to shape the genetics.
0: Mm-hmm. And that and that will vary based on all sorts of things, including the... Um, uh, Sort of the the very broad scale taxonomy of the of the organism you're talking about, but um, but also uh, different species different species of, for example, fish have different different capacities for um, moving back upstream or dispersing along the along the channel, right?
1: Yeah. So something that was interesting as I was looking into this, it seems like a lot of the work has been done especially on fish and aquatic insects which Mm -hmm. insects are kind of unique because they can often as juveniles they're aquatic but then as adults they can fly and they can um disperse over land and then fish are obviously a lot more mobile than a gastropod or like what i study an algae alga which um can't travel very far um so there was like a paper that looked into the uh, prediction of downstream increase in genetic diversity, and they found that the taxon, the taxa that can disperse over land, they still that show that pattern, but it's weaker than something that's just confined to the water. Um,
0: um, yeah, what, like, so, what have you been? How, how have you been thinking about this for your your own study organisms? What um, uh, I think you you just said you just said. Al- you're sort of envisioning al- algae are mostly limited to transport via the water.
1: Yeah. So we're looking at uh, freshwater red macroalgae in Alabama, which are, haven't been studied very much in the past. Um, there have, there have been studies of, of red macroalgae and a lot of them have been systematic. We know some things about their distribution and their, um, their life cycles, they have really interesting mating systems, uh, but not a lot about like intraspecific genetic diversity and gene flow. So, um, so they have this interesting life cycle where they have um, a microscopic sporophyte stage that is like a crust on the rock and then there's a macroscopic gametophyte stage and that's the stage we can see. So that stage has been studied more Um, we know the spores probably don't travel very far. It sounds like they travel in little whirlpools downstream of rocks, the little eddies that are created. So they, they, um, fertilization seems to happen on kind of a small scale. So I would expect from that, that populations will probably be pretty highly differentiated, which is what the study that looked at the gastropod that I was talking about earlier found. Um, and There's also has been some contemplation that I've heard, some speculation that um, birds might actually help transport this organism over longer periods when thalli get stuck to their feet and things like that, Um, just kind of from people who, who study them and have speculated this from what they see in the field. And so it's possible we'll find similarities over a broader scale than we're expecting based on things like that. Um, But we really have no idea whether that happens and the scale to which that happens. Um, And I think something else is, again, the life, the mating system might affect the genetic patterns that we see because those macroscopic gametophytes have been observed a lot more than the microscopic stage that you really need to use molecular tools to identify. And so we might find that in more places than the macroscopic stage if we look hard enough and see different genetic patterns with those populations.
2: Are you focusing on one uh, river system or do you, are you going to be traveling around and looking at this red alga at, in different locations?
1: Uh, I Or how, start, how, how
2: different, I guess, how
3: far?
1: Yeah, I want to start in Alabama. Um, which is where I'm located, obviously. And also they have very uh, biodiverse freshwater ecosystems. So we're kind of expecting based on the fact that everything else there is really diverse that the algae will be as well once we start to (laughs) studying them. Um, So we want to start with looking at the different river systems of Alabama and then possibly going further uh, from there um, in the Southeast. So the Copper River Basin is where we've started in the Black Warrior in Alabama, and there are a few others that we have in mind also locally.
0: Cool. Well that, um, that seems like a, seems like there's a lot of, a lot of uh, new stuff to learn just in the, just in the basic biology, which is always exciting.
1: Yeah. And I think it will be interesting to look at these predictions of um, gene flow and rivers in this organism too. Once we learn, as we learn more about its biology and its life history
3: um, mm-hmm.
1: and things like that, because it's pretty unique.
3: Cool.
0: Yeah, let's move along to uh, to Kelly. Uh, so you, you did this um, <laughs> uh, literal bunny trail down uh, down the history <laughs> of of rabbits' introduction to Australia.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, so my disclaimer is that I'm microbial most of the time looking at microbe stuff. So this is a little outside my wheelhouse. But um, I've always been kind of, I only know a little bit about the, the great rabbit fence down in Australia. And so I thought this would be kind of a fun opportunity to learn a little bit about that and also look at this interesting um, system, study system that sub researchers uh, have been able to capitalize on. So um, I used a handful of different articles when I was researching this, not all journal articles. I linked to all of them in the, um, in the post and some of them are kind of fun to read. So if you are interested, check those out. So just to start, we're gonna give a little bit of a history um, before we jump into what the story is, which is essentially an arms race between the evolution of a virus and the rabbits that it infects and kills. So first off, most of you maybe are familiar or at least have heard at some point that ra- that Australia has some rabbit issues along with other critter issues, I would say. but um, So while rabbits have been on the continent since the late 1700s or so, they were brought over for meat. Um, they weren't allowed to kind of roam free until the late 1800s. Uh, There's one kind of story about um, a wealthy settler in Tasmania, which is located in kind of the bottom right-hand corner of Australia. It's right across, his his estate was right across from Tasmania, essentially, um, that released somewhere, different articles quoted something 13 to 25 uh, rabbits into the wild for hunting. And it really took them essentially no time to just take over everything. Mm -hmm. And within about 10 years, they were in such absolutely wild numbers that they completely devastated crops and pastures, led to soil erosion, threatening native plants uh, with extinction, you know, harming other critters that also use the same resources that they do. And uh, within 50 years, they had colonized two thirds of Australia, which, you know, Wow, <laughs> that's, <Huh. laughs> that's, that's making some money moves there. They're, they're going fast. So, um, so clearly at this time, you'd imagine that people are getting a little bit desperate. So this isn't just an issue of kind of devastating a bunch of land. It's also totally screwing up all the farmers' livelihoods. So a lot of people are quite up in arms about the rabbits run, running kind of rampant everywhere, doing what rabbits do best, which is making more rabbits. Um, so in the 19th and 20th centuries to control them, they, they're, they're trying all sorts of things, um, that I won't list here, but there was lots of attempts (laughs) to, to get rid of the rabbits. But, uh, this idea of building a rabbit proof fence to try to stop the rabbits from either, you know, on a smaller scale, farmers would build them around their pastures to stop them from, um, coming in. Um, but on a very, very large scale, Australia decided to, build a fence um, from 1901 to 1907 across Western Australia, which is <laughs> just quite large. So it was kind of a network of fences actually. Um, it wasn't a, it, there is one single fence that was quite quite long that stretched kind of in one straight line. and at the time in 1907 when it was completed it was the longest kind of single fence all connected fence in the world. Um, but ultimately all the fences were over 3,000 kilometers long. They were kind of part one, part two, and part three. And they, the part two and part three got built because as they were building part one, they're like, ooh, this maybe isn't totally handling everything. Let's build these other parts to try to wrangle things a little bit better. So um, uh, So wow. So by the late 1940s there were about 600 million rabbits. Running around Australia, which is just—I—I I don't think I can. That's a very large number. That's a lot of rabbits um, from just being introduced. And so, you know, it's—it's it's clear that of all the places in the world, rabbits really, really like Australia because they're—they're around <laughs> in other places. Um, so, in 1950, times got desperate. So they decided to release this myxoma virus to control the population. Um, This virus is spread by mosquito bites and was initially discovered in Uruguay in uh, 1896. And it ended up killing over 99% of infected rabbits. So of any rabbits that got infected, I think it was actually 99.8 or something like that, uh, rabbits would die. But unfortunately, this didn't wipe them out. And as you can imagine, places that didn't have mosquitoes to transmit the virus you know, they're, they're still going to have plenty of rabbits. They're not going to be quite as impacted. And there's a quote from, uh, the Atlantic article that I uh, linked to from Peter Kerr. And he says, thus inadvertently became one of the great experiments in natural selection conducted on a continental scale. So, uh, Occur and I didn't read this article extensively, but in that Atlantic article, it, it links to a paper that he, uh, study that he did with his co- colleagues, and they actually had virus samples over multiple decades that they were able to kind of test the efficacy of um, against current rabbits. And uh, essentially what they saw was differences in um, ability or mortality rates in the rabbits. So that's kind of an interesting side note. Um, so while the mixoma virus over these last, you know, however many years we're at now, uh, when the study was, um, when the samples were collected for the current study um, was in 2012, so from 1950 to 2012, the mixoma virus consi- con- was consistently deadly, but it didn't, you know, kill quite at that 99.8% uh, level that it initially did. And so in the 1990s, Australia actually ended up releasing another virus, the rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus. I'm just gonna refer to it as RHD, so it's a bit of a mouthful, and also sounds really horrible, but, (laughs) Um, and this, this virus was, also pretty pretty lethal was able to kill a good amount of the rabbits so that was in uh 1995 i believe i might have to double check that 1995 or so and um the study that i talk about in my most recent article was led by nina schwanzow and she and colleagues wanted to look at the genetic adaptations in rabbits that might have led to the increased resistance of this virus because they saw that this happened over time as well with this virus. So previous work suggested that it's probably, you know, generally very complicated how resistance evolves, um, even just in lab studies. And this is, you know, the study that they're looking at is essentially rabbits in the wild in, in Australia. So that's that's including all the variables that you might have in a natural system. So so it might be very hard to kind of pull apart uh, the nuances of what's going on. Um, But not, so essentially, the authors point out that emerging infectious diseases provide one way to really try to understand co-evolution in many systems, um, as well as what they call biocontrol, which is essentially pest biological control programs, which is what they have in Australia to study. So these authors looked at genome-wide single nucleotide polymorphisms uh, and allele frequency changes in rabbit population uh, first, that was sampled in 1996, right before around when the virus was released, and then 16 years later in 2012. And so this is something like 15 or 16 generations of rabbits. Um, and in the end, they found 19,000 SNPs in total, with 46 of them that uh, were notably that were that were linked to allele or genotype frequencies that were notably different, and very close to about 57 known genes that include lots of functions that perhaps would be maybe expected involved in uh, antiviral immune responses. Uh, Many of the genes were involved in apoptosis. So they think that this could be linked um, clearly to resistance in this RHD uh, virus. They did some uh, simulations, just computer modeling to see what would happen if the population had just been allowed to kind of live its life and be affected by drift alone and this wasn't enough to explain the results that they ended up with. So they were able to kind of say, you know, definitively in a way that hadn't been quite demonstrated before that there's clearly some selection going on in uh, with the pressure of the virus. Virus. They also incorporated some previous data from one of uh, their other studies essentially on a different rabbit population and found some other significant SNPs that were shared between the two studies. So that's even more evidence for the importance of select genes that they were able to identify. Um, And I wanna side note right now, while I talked about the great rabbit fence at the beginning, the study location was not where the great rabbit fence was located. So there's lots of rabbit fences (laughs) and there's lots of rabbits. So this was a population kind of more on the the eastern side, the southeastern side of Australia. Um, so ultimately, they, they really identified some really key genes that are likely candidates for under being driven by selection under this virus. There's lots of variables. They listed a bunch of them, and that includes not only that there had been another virus already released into the wild that could be complicating things, most likely. Uh, there's also natural disasters that have really impacted rabbit populations, like like massive droughts and maybe more recently, if they study again in the future, some massive amounts of fire. So um, they emphasize that their results could be linked, most likely linked to uh, the current myxoma rabbit coevolution that's going on. So the system is complicated, but it is a really cool opportunity to study sort of coevolution in the wild from the beginning of when something was introduced. And as a final note, they throw in there that there's a a new serotype of the RHD virus that was identified in 2014 that apparently infects younger rabbits and has some other impacts. So this, I feel like this will go on for a while. They have another whole other another situation going on, a whole other study to do, if not multiple. So uh, so I enjoyed learning a little bit about the uh, the plights of rabbits and Australians.
0: Uh, yeah, Australia has had a, um, a rough history with invasion ecology. Um, I, has anybody else, does anybody else on the panel remember the, uh, or have you run across the the cane toads documentary?
2: Oh yes, I think we had to watch that in high school. I feel like that was like a requirement.
0: <laughs> I had it in I had it in my undergrad ecology class, and yeah, that was. Um, it's a classic, but it's also <laughs> another another case of <laughs> of Europeans bringing something in that seemed like a good idea and <laughs> uh, yeah. discovering that it really, really wasn't.
3: They also yeah, there's have a very interesting history of animal control for not even invasive species. Um, one of my favorite podcasts did an episode on the rabbit-proof fence. Um, it's oh. from stuff you missed in history class. It's oh. from December ninth. 90- 2017 they also did an episode on the emu wars which was a story of and emus are, are indigenous they, they are native to australia um but they caused a lot of crop damage and apparently some people thought it was a great idea to take machine guns out and just shoot the emus uh and it didn't go very well uh but yeah so fyi there's a great it's a great episode it really covers a lot of of what kelly Cox talked about in terms of the history of how rabbits got to Australia, how they exploded, but it doesn't cover any of this disease stuff, which is fascinating.
1: wonder, have viruses ever been used in other situations for controlling invasive species? That seems crazy to me. Um, This was the
2: first one. I'm not really in the in the land of this. Um, I think so. There's been other emerging. There's been other diseases that have been noted that have emerged that have definitely decimated populations Um, as far as viruses being introduced. I think that's uh, not usually usually something that happens. I think I I could be wrong. I think that somebody else had I am trying to think of the after this virus was introduced in Australia, farmers in another location that were having uh, issues. I think in New Zealand, the farmers uh, kind of did it on their own. So the government had decided not to release the virus, even though they contemplated it, because they were also having rabbit issues. But there was a handful of farmers that just um, threw some rabbits that were infected with this virus out. Um, they, there is one article I read that had sort of a gory description of how they did it. So I'm not going to go into that. But they um, essentially put out dead rabbit for mosquitoes to spread or for other rabbits to perhaps consume. Wow. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> that was that was just related to this. But I don't I'm not familiar with other cases in the world where it's been purposefully released for control um, as a virus specifically. But I don't know. Have you guys any thoughts on that?
0: I'm trying to think of a specific case. I, um, I, this sort of biological control has is done a lot, much more frequently with pest insects. Mm, Um, mm. And I feel pretty sure there have been, there have been disease introductions as well as predator introductions to try to deal with, uh, with agricultural insect pests. Mm. Uh, But I can't come up with, uh, off the top of my head, I can't come up with a good example
2: yeah, I'm going to have to think about that, but, um, but I, that's, that's funny that you mentioned that podcast, uh, because I think that's what, that's where my vague memory of some history of <laughs> the rabbit-proof friends actually came from. <laughs> and I had to go, I Googled for a little bit podcasts about rabbit-proof friends to try to figure out what I was thinking of. And it was the, <laughs> what you missed in history class,
3: which <laughs> oh, I just, a couple of quick Googles because Google is our friend. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Conversation published a piece in 2014 called How Biocontrol Fights Invasive Species. Uh, They talk about the complete failure of the cane toad attempt, Um, but they give the example of the prickly pear, which was introduced in Australia in the late 1770s, became rapidly invasive after a flood 100 years later, but biocontrol was initiated in the early 1900s with the prickly pear moth, and it's basically kept it under control since mm-hmm. then. Um, other examples they mention are the, uh, just to can, in, control invasive plants. Uh, the Invasive plants are the mimosa in the global north, the bridal creeper in southern Australia, and uh, parthenian in Queensland. Um, Actually, all of these seem to be in Australia. So that seems to be a really popular uh, thing in Australia. But uh, it's a series of cost benefit analyses in 2006 revealed that for every dollar spent on biocontrol of invasive plants, agricultural industries benefited by $23. Um, and then they go on to discuss other things that might be a good, a good candidate for potential biocontrol. So, seems like it's been done successfully a few times.
2: Yeah, that's, a, that's quite a jump. I just I just think about all the variables that are in a situation or in an environment, it just seems. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I mean, we all know stories of biocontrol where they introduced a predator to an island to wipe out rats or, or usually it's rats, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those usually fail miserably. Um, so, you know, uh, I guess the solution is to do some research ahead of time. I'm not really sure.
0: Um, Well, and there's, and there's levels of specificity, right? Like a, like something that's going to eat a small mammal, uh, is, is, is a risk for (laughs) non-target, non-target action. (laughs) It's going to eat
3: all the small mammals and lizards (laughs) and birds and everything else yeah um, the uh, i
2: i could be wrong a really quick hawaii story was so we have rats and i i believe the mongeese were introduced to try to get rid of some of the rats but mm-hmm. unfortunately they have so rats are kind of out and about at night and mongis are kind of out and about during the day so whoops
0: what are they what what are they eating instead
2: uh i i'm not an expert okay. i don't know yeah, the, the they were introduced quite a quite a while ago. I think when uh, there was more sugar plantation things here, so it was also an attempt to help agricultural systems, even though mm-hmm. they've been a problem um, for multiple other reasons here. Both roots.
0: Well, all of the all of the complications that happen when we start trying to trying to steer ecological systems. So this is a this is as good a time as any to transition to a case where we actually do uh, do manage this pretty well. Um, so uh, back at the beginning of back at the beginning of the the COVID outbreak, I hopped on the sourdough the the sourdough bandwagon, <laughs> and discovered that it was more challenging than I than I initially thought. It took me. Maybe three times as long as it was supposed to to get a to get a starter culture working working nicely, um, but it really like in principle you put flour and water together and you let it ferment and uh, eventually you get you get a a culture of of microbes in there that that respire enough to to rapidly increase the volume and this is this is a basis for uh, leavening bread and it's actually the, the oldest way that we've leavened bread. Um, processed industrial yeast, the sort you get in a packet, um, not even the instant kind but just just isolated Saccharomyces cerevisiae, that's a that's that's an innovation from the uh, the 19th century onward. We didn't have that um, for most of human bread-making history. Um, and so I, I had the starter working, and I had some Insta- Instagram appropriate uh, photos of, of bread products, um, and I decided to start reading up on what we actually knew about uh, the microbiology going on in that starter. And my 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 mental model when I when I started out for this was a um, was basically a controlled evolution. I uh, the process of cultivating a starter is you you Begin with your you begin with your medium, which has whatever, whatever microbes you introduce at the start, um, and then you you go through a, what's called a back slopping procedure. This is a technical term in the the sourdough scientific literature, um, where you are you're taking a subset uh, in a periodic way, usually twice a day. You're taking a subset of the starter and adding it to fresh medium um, and letting it letting it eat that for a period, and then and then doing that over and over again. And that seemed to me like a pretty, um, it looked to me like a, like a serial passage selection experiment. But of course uh, I wasn't doing that in a sterile, in a sterile environment or in any kind of controlled way. And when you're introducing fresh flour into, into the starter and that back slopping procedure, you're reintroducing a whole bunch of, uh, of whatever microbial community was in the flower that you might've started the culture with. So really, it's more of a community assembly process. Um, your your repeat your the starter has access to everything that's floating around in your kitchen and everything that's in the flour source that you're using, um, but over time, uh, it becomes dominated by a relatively a relatively replicable set of, of taxa, usually um, bacteria that are that are eating. Uh, uh, eating long chain hydrocarbons in the, in the, um, in the flour by using lactic acid metabolism. And that's changing the pH of the, of the starter. And that's why sourdough is sour. Um, and then also yeasts that are able to hang out in that, in that, um, in acidic environment and benefit from some of the, some of the, uh, metabolic byproducts of the, of the bacteria. Um, and so I, I went looking for for just a straightforward study where someone had sequenced what they started with and sequenced what they had at the end when they had a mature starter and that mostly doesn't exist um, because there are so many possible sources uh, sources of input for the for the starter people do things like um, uh, add flowers not not flower but flowers to uh, um to their starters, to to try to cultivate a, a unique uh, community in the starter, um, uh, lots of lots of uh, lots of do your own sourdough uh, instructions suggest that you start them with some yogurt, uh, so you're using the same lactobacillus that's in that's in the yogurt. And in fact, uh, so Saccharomyces cerevisiae, what's known as baker's yeast or brewer's yeast, that is. That's what you sort of assume is in is in a sourdough starter, but it's it's not the case very frequently. Um, the thinking is that that this yeast um, ends up in starters as frequently as it does, not because it's being introduced with the flour or because it's particularly suited even to the the starter culture environment, but because sourdough starters are started and maintained in bakeries and bakeries. Are heavily contaminated with uh, industrially cultivated Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, so a much more common yeast, if you're not using a lot of a lot of uh, S. cerevisiae in your in your baking, is uh, uh, a Candida species, um, or something in the genus uh, Kazakhstania is apparently in the top the top list also. Um, and so what, so what we have with with sourdough is really a situation where there's this, um, we're, s- the cultivation of a starter is kind of steering the environment of the starter to get, uh, to get the right kinds of things in, but we're not taking very strong control on what those things are. Um, and it still produces this, this standardized, pretty widely used product. Um, and it's, it's, uh, this kind of, kind of impressive case where uh, through, you know, lots of historical trial and error, uh, humans have actually kind of figured out how to, how to cultivate a whole ecological community to benefit them.
2: So how sour was your sourdough when you made it?
0: (laughs) It's, uh, I've been, it's sour enough that I think I would be able to tell in a blind taste test that it was sourdough. All
1: right. Um, Sounds pretty good.
0: Yeah, it's not. It's not super sharp. It's not. Um, it's definitely not San Francisco sourdough.
2: <laughs> Have you thought about? Um, you can buy certain sourdough starters. Have you contemplated doing a, a sort of an experiment here?
0: I maybe should actually. I need to. I would need to think about this. What sourcing would be worth it? Um, the uh, the King Arthur Flour Company, which has the the protocol online that I followed does also just sell starter um, mm-hmm. which maybe their maybe their game plan is that their protocol <laughs> is so frustrating that they're gonna <laughs> they'll talk you into it um, uh, um, if that if that is some of the so what would be what would be actually fun to do would be to get a hold of the the classic um, the classic San Francisco starter uh, the company that that uses that has been apparently cultivating it consistently for, uh, something upwards of a century. Uh, so that, yeah, that starter, um, that starter has been a focus of, of some, some, um, genetic studies. Um, and in fact, I think, I think the, so Lactobacillus San Franciscensis is, is the, the, most common but also probably just most studied of the of the sourdough bacteria and it was isolated from that culture
2: yeah I mean I I suppose that makes sense I think often uh just if you wanted a culture um I've seen some bakeries around here even will give out um their starter I don't know if it was a pandemic thing because I hadn't noticed it before but um they were they were happily giving out a little bit of their starter So you could ask around at your favorite
1: bakery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have a local bakery that does that as well. That's neat. I want to know where they got their starters from.
2: I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's a thing if they, you know, when a bakery starts out, if they talk to their bakery friends and they say, or if they start their very own.
0: (laughs) I mean, it seems, it seems possible, uh, to keep them going for quite a while and, There is, there is some evidence that the specific community in the culture has an impact on flavor. Um, So there's good reasons to, like, if you know someone who makes really good sourdough, get a hold of that starter specifically.
2: Yes, definitely. Uh, I had a friend in grad school who was, wow, an amazing baker. And I had tried to make my own starter. It was okay, but then I, I, I got some of hers and I was like, wow, how did you do this magical, <laughs> this magical feed <feat> of bread? <laughs> very consistent feeding schedule and just a good a good starter.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe just a very fortunate uh, kitchen environment.
2: Yes, yes, definitely.
3: Now I'm thinking about the parallels between – we haven't talked about our current – we mentioned the pandemic. But now I'm thinking about currently, like, all of the phylogenetics of tracing COVID versus the phylogenetics of tracing sourdough starters. And I would like to see equivalent uh, studies done on – all these different sourdough starters what what is it about them where do they come from you know who's getting their sourdough starter from where i that is all very fascinating to me
0: well so there is a there is a group at uh um north carolina state that is they specialize in Mm -hmm. in sort of um community science based microbiology uh they I think they were the same folks behind the Belly Button Biodiversity Project.
3: They were. Erin um, McKinney is a yeah. good friend and she okay. she's very, very invested. And she <laughs> named her sourdough yesterday. <laughs> um, uh,
0: yeah, so they, they might be in a position to start that. that. Like they've got the they've got the broader project of having folks send in samples of their starter for sequencing. Katie, are you are you uh <laughs> set to tell us about about professional development resources? Uh you've still got you've still got uh an enthusiastic coworker in the <laughs> background. I do.
3: Um, yes, I am. I'll just keep throwing treats at them until they be quiet. Um
0: To be clear, the coworker is is your dog. The
3: coworker <laughs> are my two dogs who are um yeah. Who are enthusiastically participating in our current conversation. Yeah. I'm some friends two. with Aaron McKinney on Facebook. Um, because we went to grad school together and she posted the other day at long last, a suitable name for my sourdough starter, David Dowie, which I found <laughs> highly entertaining. <laughs> um, cause Aaron is the one who's running all a lot of those community science, um, and, and, uh, sourdough and belly button project type stuff. Um, but yes, I am, if my co-workers will be quiet, I would be happy to talk about the um, post that, I, that just went up today, actually, about professional development resources. Um, because I, traditionally, you're supposed to learn how to be a scientist and learn how to be a good academic and a good colleague um, and a good mentee and a good mentor, kind of in, in all of our grad school is set up in the apprentice model, right? You join a lab, you learn the norms from that lab or from the labs around you. You uh, maybe have a little bit of peer mentoring with your with your cohort or the cohorts above you. Um, but and and sometimes there are webinars or workshops or um, you know sessions at conferences about various things about specific topics usually it's not usually a general professional development but it might be about lab management or publishing or how to get a grant etc but it turns out there's there's just an awful lot of questions that maybe you don't want to ask someone Um, For the examples i gave in the post for things like you know how do you write a cold email to someone to ask about their methods or how do you as a, as a grad student, how do you ask someone to be on your PhD committee or your quals committee? Um, and those can be really, they can take up a lot of emotional energy and a lot of time to try mm-hmm. to figure out the answer to that. And the problem is that your friends in grad school, your peer mentors likely are at your same stage and probably don't know the answer any better than you do. Um, and so when I was in grad school, I started, this was back when Google feeder, Google feeder, Feed was still a thing, and so there, Google had an RSS feeder, and I uh, started an RSS feed where I could keep track of all of these blogs, because as it turns out, um, academics have been blogging for uh, almost as long as the internet's been around about, and now it's more moved to Twitter, et cetera, but um, these conversations have been going on for a long time, and it occurred to me that if I could learn a lot of things from various members of my department, I could also learn a lot from a more extended community that we're in of people who were in different departments, in different fields, et cetera. Because the norms actually change from field to field as well, right? Um, Even something that we might think of as standard as in terms of who gets to be first author and who gets to be last author on a paper actually is field specific. We don't think of it as being field specific, but it is. Um, and so I just started keeping this list of blogs that I followed and every once in a while I have someone who asked me, Oh, where did you find that, that post? Or where did you get the answer to that question? And I refer them to these lists of blogs. And the other day, uh, Catherine Turner, another co- contributor to the molecular ecologist asked if I had any book suggestions for first year graduate students to introduce them to grad school. And I said, no. I don't know of any books like that. Maybe there are. If there are, I'd love listeners to chime in. Um, But I do have a whole list of blogs because I transitioned over to a different RSS theater and I still look at them every day. Um, And so I gave her my favorites and I realized that I had done that at least 10 or 15 times over the course of the last five years. And that this might be a resource that people might find interesting um, or might be, uh, excited to learn about as a new graduate student. And so I put up a list of, of the different blogs that I follow, including a few that, are, that aren't active anymore, but their backlog is, is really incredible. Um, and I described my process, which is that I consider this part of my professional development training. It is something that I do weekly. I check it for about an hour, at least once a week. I usually use it on, do it on my lunch break. Um, and it helps me to think about situations I may never have been in, to uh, understand how other faculty or how other grad students or postdocs handle different challenges, um, and get a little, honestly, a little validation for my own struggles. Um, and based on on the response it's getting on Twitter right now, um, I would it's getting positive response right now so um, I hope it's useful to people these are not necessarily endorsements of these blogs in or of everything they say on these blogs because everything we academics say is not gold. Um, but they are they are the ones that I have found to be the most helpful over the course of the last decade or so
0: yeah I think
2: that's a good resource to share for sure
0: It's sort of an it's sort of an online version of or a a natural online move of this very informal professional development education that we all get.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I well and you know, there are some grad students who maybe don't have access to a large network of mentors or Mm -hmm. maybe they're the only grad student in their lab or there's only two in their cohort. And so it's very hard to crowdsource advice. When there's only you, there's no crowd yeah. there. Um, I think you pointed out something
2: really important, which is that sometimes, I mean, especially when you're first starting out um, in any position, either as a new postdoc in a new lab or a new grad student in a new program or whatever, a new environment, there's so many other things you're juggling, like just the new city, the new how you do things, whatever. It's, it sometimes becomes really hard to ask questions because you almost feel like, oh, I should know that already by now. And so um, it's kind of a nice way to maybe educate without putting yourself in a situation where you feel incredibly uncomfortable
3: or um, inadequate. There are so many questions, right? I can remember my first year in graduate school spending half a day trying to write an email to a faculty member because I didn't know what to say. How do you start that email? Mm -hmm. Hi, (laughs) then what? (laughs) <laughs> right? Like there was, how do you end it? Um, there were, It felt like there were so many small things that I was really struggling with. Um, and some of these, these different resources have, they cover at the gamut, they cover small things like that, but they also cover big things like how to decide what journal to submit your paper to, how do you decide authorship order, and how do you have a difficult conversation with a collaborator how do you motivate graduate students to get work done? How do you, as a trainee, manage up your advisor to get them to read your papers, etc.? Like, so the the there's just so much to learn from this sort of collective wisdom um, of, you know, what what if you add it all together is hundreds of years of being in the academia um, of experience <laughs> and. Um, yeah, I, like Kelly was talking about, I, I can just remember being so adrift and not feeling like I knew the answers. Um, and uh, it turns out that a lot of people had already done this before me, and so I didn't need to reinvent the wheel. And I'm trying to prevent other people from having to do the same thing.
1: That's great.
0: Uh, yeah. Um, what impresses me about this list is is well a couple of things. How many of these I actually recognize as having been, like, part of the science blogosphere before I knew that that was a thing? Um, <laughs> so, like, the uh, Drug Monkey or the EEB and Flow. I don't yeah. know when those were founded. They are they are online institutions.
3: Yep, yep. Drug Monkey <laughs> female science professor was as well for mm. a really long time. Um, There, I took off a few, there are a few that are missing from here that stopped being active a few years ago, but they were institutions, um, for a really long time. And, um, they, they, a lot of times they cover less, um, sort of general topics now, like Drug Monkey doesn't usually cover, uh, general topics anymore, but his backlog is pretty incredible, um, Mm -hmm. or their backlog is pretty incredible. And, um yeah, there's, there's just, and they, they, what I love about it is it spans the gamut. So there's some stuff here for graduate students, some stuff here for postdocs, new PIs, mid-career PIs, um, NIH and NSF funding. Um, there's some, there's a lot of, this is fairly biology heavy, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, a lot of these, uh, the thesis whisper is not a biologist. Um, I, I don't think I there's a few other, you know, the professor is in, is an anthropologist, um, et cetera. And so there's, there's a range for graduate students uh, to look at. Um,
0: yeah. And you've also got, I like that I like the mix in of, of um, sort of generalized management skills focused stuff, which is really something where even the informal networks, when you have a good one kind of break I-
3: down. I'm going to take a stand right now and tell everyone who's listening to this that you should be reading Ask a Manager every day. You should. We as PIs, we as graduate students, we do not receive a lot of training in personnel management and it, is, it turns out to be one of our biggest tasks. Ask a Manager. All she does is answer questions about how to be a good manager in various situations. And every day, you will find, she posts almost every day, several times a day, Um, and you will find situations, they're not academic specific, but you will find situations you have been in. You will find situations that are related, and you will find situations that you're like, oh, I never would have thought of that. I wouldn't have any idea how to respond to that. And you will also find situations that you will just giggle about and be grateful that you're not in. Uh Um but it's something that I recommend to all people. And also, you know, at the end of it, I note that, that NSF and NIH all have blogs as well. A lot of the different um, uh, arms of those two funding organizations have blogs and those are good places to see funding calls or changes to rules or things like that. Um, and so they're, they're added, they're on my, my RSS feed as well.
0: Cool. Well, that is, uh, that is going to be a great resource. I think for lots of folks, um, highly recommended. Um, you
3: guys have any additions or if any of the readers do, I would love, uh, I'm always looking to add to my RSS reader and I'd love to add them to this post. So, uh, let us know
0: what RSS reader do you use? I keep trying to go back to that mode and (laughs) Uh, I've never found something. Okay.
3: Something called the old reader. It's not great. Um, but it does what I need it to do, mm-hmm. which, is, which is sufficient for my purposes. Um, and it's better than the way I used to do it when I first started in grad school, which is to bookmark all of the blogs and open them all up in tabs at the same oh time. God. Um, so, try, you know, I highly recommend an RSS feeder or, or like a Twitter list. A lot of these um, websites have Twitters as well, like the Molecular Ecologist does that will post their, that will uh, retweet their different posts. And so you could also start a list on Twitter of things you want to follow.
0: Cool. All right. Well, uh, I think that, I think that's a good place to wrap it up for today. Um, As a general announcement, Katie, you are looking for photos from listeners, right?
3: Yes, I am. Um, We posted our first sort of nostalgic fieldwork photo posts from all of the TME contributors the other day. Um, And I don't know about readers, but I really enjoyed looking at the photos and thinking about being in the field and and was also really enjoying seeing the physical representation of what the other contributors do um, and sort of seeing a moment in their lives uh, that that led to where they are today, and so I would love if uh, readers would contribute some of their own photos. We'd love to feature you on our next post.
0: Yeah, so send those in. We're um, we're all uh, doing field season at a little bit of a remove this year, in, in a in a lot of cases, and uh, it's nice to see photos. Definitely. Um, I uh, just as a just as a uh, another um, general statement at the end. I want to um, reaffirm that that uh, black lives matter the uh, the protests that have prompted a lot of commentary are uh, are still going on and um, we are of course uh, ecologists and evolutionary biologists in a field that has has had some uh, substantial challenges around uh, inclusion of folks who aren't uh, white dudes like me um, that's something we all need to be continuing to con- continuing to work on, and I want to re- reaffirm the importance of that. Um, if so, anyone is uh, interested, yeah.
3: Jeremy, there's been some there's two really great pieces I would recommend. Nature Ecology and Evolution had an amazing statement they posted a couple of days ago, and Nature, the journal, posted a piece the other day of what your black colleagues wish that institutions knew and would do. Uh, oh, that's to support good Support them. It's a, it's a really great piece. It's from the twenty, I think the 20th of June. Um, that is really good reading.
0: Cool. We will, we will link to those in the show notes. Um, there's also, there's also been circulating a, uh, a post specifically a, uh, a, just an open letter format to um, evolution and ecology that is really good, really good and useful. Um, and we'll, we'll have that link as well. Um, okay, so I think, I think that is, that is, uh, it for the, it for the podcast or for this episode. Uh, thanks everybody for joining us. Um, thank you to, uh, thank you to the panel.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for me and the dogs.
0: um yeah you can find all of the all of the things we've discussed in this episode at molecularecologist.com and you can follow updates from the molecular ecologist on twitter at mol ecologist or uh find us on facebook um the molecular ecologist podcast is produced by turning on zoom and hoping for the best we're hosted on anchor.fm and you can subscribe (laughs) there or via (laughs) apple podcasts google podcasts and a bunch of other services Um, If you've enjoyed this episode, please think about taking the time to rate and review it to help us build an audience and keep this thing going. Um, Until next time, uh, this is is the Molecular Ecology team hoping that all your code is bug-free, all your PCR targets amplify, and all your reviewers are friendly and thorough.